Are you kind of fretting and regretting already here as we enter this new year, kind of unsettled and maybe unsure what's going to take place in your life or in the world? Maybe just in need of peace. You know, there are so many things that compete for our time these days. And so many times we give in and we take on and just keep on and on and on. And you know, I don't know about you, but my lists are already full. My calendar is exploding already for the year. My plate is overflowing. And how important it is that we really get a handle on our walk of faith and on our life and reset our priorities and make sure we're focused on the main things in life. And so we're calling this new series, Margin, Making Room for What Matters. Making Room for What Matters. And you know, it's really vital that we continually readjust and re-examine how things are going in our life. Do you have enough margin to do the things you need to do in serving God, serving the church, living life? For example, the average time I'm told that users spend on Facebook is now just about an hour a day. And that's more than any other leisure activity surveyed by the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, with the exception of watching TV, which is about three hours. But it's more time than people spend reading. It's more time than people spend exercising. It's more time than people spend going to social events. It's almost as much time as we spend eating, which is just over an hour a day. And sadly, they seem to say of all the Facebook time that we spend, it makes us less happy. In fact, there was one uh, summarized study in the American Journal of Epidemiology, and it concluded the more Facebook hours you log on social media, the more your sense of well-being declines, the less happy you seem to be. And yet it's one of those things that we still seem to find time to do it even if it means uh, not sleeping as much as night or skipping a meeting or uh, skipping lunch just so we can do it. And we do all kinds of things like that in our life. And so this morning, I want to ask you, what would margin, real margin, look like in your life? What would success look like if you were balanced, if you were satisfied if you were at rest, if you were really content. And this is where this writing here in the book of Philippians really challenges me. And Paul writes here at the end of this book, this fourth chapter, and he writes here in verse 12, I have learned the secret of contentment. You know, I remember when I first started my ministry, I used to be a sucker for every time I saw a book with a title, Secret, in the title. In fact, you could go to my office today and, uh, or my library at home, and you would probably find a lot of books with uh, the word secret in the title. Uh, the secret of better preaching, the secret of how to grow the church, the secret of having a real vibrant prayer life, the secret of the kingdom of God, or the secret of radiant living. And uh, we all like secrets. There's just something about the word secret that kind of grabs our attention, and we just want to know more. 
Maybe some of you that are old enough to remember that old commercial that used to be on TV and the scene was the laundry mat and this lady walked in to get her, her clothes and it was so bright and clean and she said to the clerk, how did you get these clothes so uh, clean? And she said, it's an ancient Chinese secret. An ancient secret. We all like secrets. And so often we can't keep a secret, can we? And we see people that somehow have accomplished a great deal in life. Maybe they're wealthy. And you just want to know the, the secret ingredients. How do they get there? Or maybe they've lost a lot of weight. Or maybe they're just really physically fit. Or maybe they've done this. Or maybe they've done that. And, and you're thinking, well, they must know a secret. And somehow if I could just find out the secret, then I could have it myself. The world just appeals to us that way. And Paul says here, I have learned the secret of being content. Now, I don't know about you, but I would like to know that secret, wouldn't you? The secret of how to be content. Uh, a few Christmases ago, I saw a cartoon, and uh, it was around Christmas, and uh, Dennis the Menace. And uh, it was Christmas morning, and they and his family, they had just unwrapped all of the packages. And mom and dad, they were seated over in the corner, and they each had a gift in their lap. But here was old Dennis. He was seated on a whole mound of toys. And the caption read, is that all? And you know, that's more truth than fiction, isn't it? And that's why Paul says, I have learned the secret of contentment. Now, I got to tell you, I don't think contentment is natural to anybody. In fact, I believe it's one of the glaring characteristics of our human nature, uh, that of feeling of being discontent or not being adequate or we're just kind of discombobulated and, and we're not in any kind of rest or harmony. And Paul says, I've learned that whatever state I'm in, not the state of Ohio, not the state of Indiana or, or Kentucky, but whatever my conditions are, I've learned to be content. I've learned to be at peace. And you know, because we live in a day of so much discontentment, it's only really natural to desire to know this secret of how we can be at rest. You know, we have so much going on today, and we have so much available to us, and yet we seem to be so discontent. We have never in America had so much prosperity, the economy, the stock market, and yet there's so much cultural strife, and there's so much discontentment among people here in America. Somebody said the tragedy of our culture is that all of us have addresses, but none of us can be found there. Uh, we're all running here and there, uh, trying to get this and trying to satisfy that and trying to participate in that. And Paul says, I've learned to be content, and it's not based on any kind of material prosperity. We are so prosperous, and yet we are so discontented. It seems like the things of this world are like salt water. It doesn't satisfy our thirst. It only irritates it and aggravates it. And you want to say, sure, Paul, that's, that's nice of you to say. It's probably easy for you to say that. You've got uh, money, you've got fame and popularity with the crowd. Uh, you're a good writer. You're probably living in a glass house overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. But that's not true because in the previous chapter, if you have read the book of Philippians, in chapter 3, he says, I suffered the loss of all things, and I've counted them as rubbish. I've had everything, and I've lost it all, and I count it as useless. 
You know, if we would really analyze our conversation, we would probably be amazed to discover that oftentimes when we speak, we speak in respect of want. I mean, let's face it, many times we evaluate people not on what we can do for them, but what they can do for us. I'll never forget the story of a church further out Midwest, I think it was in Oklahoma, that one morning as the people were assembling for church, they noticed this uh, fella out in the parking lot that was looking for change in, in the parking lot and rumbling through the trash cans and all like that. And he, he was a very shabbily dressed individual and looked dirty and his pants were worn, his shoes had holes in them, he had a dirty shirt and dirty ball cap and, uh, and he came finally to rest right on the church steps. And people were kind of noticing this as they were ending their church that day and kind of elbowing one another, look at that old bum out here, this looks awful in front of our church. And finally, the, the church worship started, and people started coming in, and, uh, and uh, about the middle of the service, this gentleman also started into the service. Things were already underway, and, and he walked right down the center of the aisle, and people were elbowing. Look, this guy's coming right into our church. He made his way up to the platform and got up to the pulpit, and you know what he did? He pulled off his wig and pulled off his ball cap, and it was the pastor. And, and he went on to preach a sermon on compassion. He said only a couple of people even bothered to ask if he needed anything, if he had any problem. You know, often we look at people in terms of what they can do for us and not what we can do for them. And rather than living lives of grateful contentment, our lives so much are filled with complaining. Uh, we whine and pine and recline. We complain when our children are noisy instead of being thankful that they're happy and healthy. We complain when there's a problem with our car or with our home when thousands of people, if you read the newspapers and look on TV, they don't even have a home. The homeless. We complain about all kinds of things. And why is that? I believe we've never learned the secret of contentment. Now, maybe we ought to call this sermon today the secret society of the satisfied. But I want to ask you today, are you really anchored? I want to ask today, is there a real margin in your life? Are you setting time aside for what really matters in life? Notice one of the portions here, one of the, one of the phrases that um, Paul indicates to us here is that part of this secret involves rejoicing in what you have being thankful for what you have been given. Now, this is not pie in the sky. This is not some unattainable goal or, or some type of lofty, uh, unreachable thing, but there is a way to have real contentment, and Paul says, I've found it. And I know not many people have found it. Not pe many people have, have really discovered it. And I find the secret of this whole passage is probably in this term contentment. It's an interesting term that Paul uses here, a tremendous word. It, it really means to be self-sufficient. Now, I know there's a self-sufficiency that is sinful, that, but that's not the word here in the Greek that Paul is really using. It's, it's more here about uh, regardless of the situation, regardless of whatever happens, the circumstances, I, I'm content. And you know, God knows your needs. And 
Paul here, in many cases, uh, maybe even in the pastoral epistles like in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, he always spoke about needs. Paul had needs. Paul snored and sneezed like we do. He, he was hungry. He got tired and experienced life just like we do. But he found something in life that gave him contentment. We all have needs. And even the Lord recognized that in the Sermon on the Mount, did he not? He said, I know the lilies of the field and the birds of the air and how much more I'm going to take care of you. And still Paul says, I've learned to be content. And Paul said, I've discovered this inexhaustible source that makes me independent of outside circumstances, of outside conditions. And Paul uses the word as he looks in the old Roman Empire there. And it was a word oftentimes used then in conjunction uh, with countries that were self-contained. In other words, they didn't have to look beyond their borders for any kind of resources, but they had everything they needed and they didn't need to depend on other countries for their survival. And Paul says here, he doesn't need anything from the outside, but he's self-contained. I like what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 in verse 10. He said, having nothing, yet possessing all things. And what do you do with a person like that? That has nothing and yet possesses all things. He's saying we're all wealthy bankrupts. We're penniless pulpers. You know, I have to be honest with you. If God grades on a curve, I think I'll pass. You know, you always had those professors in schools and, and uh, everybody would bomb a test, but they would grade on a curve. And, and you know, I do my best. Uh, you know, I've learned to be content in most situations, but I have to say there's oftentimes those experiences you have where you become so kind of, uh, you know, upset. And, and, you know, I'm growing just like you are. And Paul says here, I've learned to be content. I'm reminded of Psalm 135 where it says, God is like the day and the night. The day and the night are alike me. God is the same at night, as other, in other words, as he is during the day. And I wonder if that could be said about you. We see not only that in this text about this secret, but we find out too, it says here in verse 12, it's got to be learned. And that's what I thought. You're saying, well, I'm disappointed. I thought you were going to give me the secret sauce of how to have contentment this afternoon. I was afraid of that. But Paul says it's got to be learned. He says, I learned the secret of contentment. Now, the word learn here means a lengthy process. This is not microwave stuff here. This is, this is a crock pot. This is a cooking situation, a long and an arduous process, perhaps, and, and not many of us want to go back to school. Not many of us want to go back and, and, and re-enroll in school and take more classes. That's not what we're hoping for, but Paul says here in verse 12, we've got to go back to school. And notice the curriculum here in the University of Life. He says, to us, hunger 101, suffering 102, abounding 103, being full 104. You know, throughout my life, I've known people that have said, boy, I'd like to play the piano like Jeff Sperry. I'd like to be able to play those handbells. Or I'd like to be able to do this or do that. And, you know, I kind of think, no, you wouldn't. You, you don't want to do all the practice that's needed. 
You don't want to learn all that stuff. You just want to be zapped and one day wake up and be able to tickle the keys and toot the horn and whatever it is and, and just have that ability. But Paul says we have to go through the learning process. And you see, this world tries to make us content also by possessions, what we can obtain and what we can acquire. You'll go home this afternoon, no doubt, and turn on your TV or grab your iPad, and you'll see all kinds of advertisements out there, all kinds of people saying, you need this in your life, and it'll make you more happy. This will add real value to your life and experience. It will really help you out. And what's the secret here? He says to all of that, it, it's not increasing your possessions, but it's dealing with your desires. It's looking internally. What are you anchored in? In whom are you anchored? Because in verse 13, Paul says it like this, that I can do all things now through Jesus Christ who strengthens me. That's the secret, isn't it? Is do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one that gives strength. He's the only one that gives you rest and wisdom and peace. He is the oasis, the well of living water that will never run dry. You know, some years ago, there was this man in England who was very wealthy, and he had this famous art collection Maybe you read about that. And uh, he had this art collection, and uh, his wife died early, and he only had one son, and the son was the apple of his eye. He loved the son dearly. But his son was killed in World War II, and he didn't know what he was going to do with his estate and all of his belongings, and especially this wonderful and very fine art collection that was worth, back in that day, about a couple million dollars. It was a very nice collection, and so... When he died, he had formulated this will, and uh, people had gathered there from all over the world to have a part of this art collection. And they came there that, that day, and the lawyer got up, kind of as the executor, and he got up and he said, according to the terms of this will, the first thing that's got to be auctioned off is this picture, this portrait of the man's son. And so no one knew the son, no one uh, really... Uh, knew anything about him. Uh, it was not painted, this portrait, by any famous artist. But uh, the lawyer said, this is what has to be done. And there was only one person there that bid on it that day, and it happened to be somebody that knew the son, had worked with the family, and he was very beloved and meant so much to this, uh, this uh, fella. And so he bid on it, and no one else bid on it. And the lawyer said, gone, gone gone, sold to this gentleman right over here. And the man got up and picked up the portrait and he went and sat down. And as soon as it did, the lawyer got back up and he said, ladies and gentlemen, this, this auction's over. And there was an audible gasp. And he said, well, whoever got the son, according to the will, got it all. I wonder today, as we embark on this journey together of 2020, if you are anchored in Jesus Christ, if you know the Lord as your Savior, if you are at peace and have that margin in your life, you're living with the Son of God daily. Shall we pray?
Oh God, we thank you that even though this world seems to be coming apart at the seams, there's talks of war, there's violence, there's all kinds of things happening in our communities and in our homes and our families and even in our church. Oh, how we pray, Lord, that we would lean upon you that we would anchor ourselves in you, for we know it's in you that we can find true peace and have rest. So speak to our hearts here this morning, each and all. May your spirit draw us unto the cross, for we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.